Hi, I'm Charlotte Leslie, Director of CMEC. This series of podcasts on Turkey is proudly sponsored by Karkin and Yuxel, a Turkish law firm based in London. You can find more information about Karkin and Yuxel, their London office and their practice areas on their website, www.karkinyuxel.co.uk. You can also find a link to their website directly in the description of this podcast. Hi, I'm Cheyenne Talabani and welcome back to the CMEC podcast. On our last episode, we heard from Dr. Aykan Erdemir, former Turkish member of parliament for the pro-secular Republican People's Party and a critic of current Turkish president Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Straddling both the East and West, Turkey is situated in a rather difficult neighborhood. Turkey, of course, provided a buffer zone of sorts for much of Western Europe during the refugee crisis following the Syrian war but it has also faced its own economic and political difficulties in recent years, most notably with the continuous Kurdish question in Turkey, as well as rising criticism of its current leadership and of authoritarianism. Turkey's president Erdogan cuts a rather controversial figure, both in Europe and in the Middle East. To discuss the present situation, I am delighted to be joined by Sir David Logan. Sir David is former British ambassador to Turkey, and for most of his career, he has specialised in Eastern-Western relations and in defence policy. Since retirement from the Foreign Office, he has served as director of the Centre for Studies in Security and Diplomacy at Birmingham University, a senior fellow of the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, and as chair of the British Institute in Ankara. So David, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak to us and to tell us about the current state of play in Turkey. Thank you very much, and I'm looking forward to this um, to the questions you're going to ask. I'd like to start, Sir David, by talking about Turkey's membership within NATO. Later this month, we know that the NATO Leaders Summit is taking place in Brussels, and Erdogan has said in recent weeks and and days that he believes the meeting with US President Biden during the upcoming summit will mark the beginning of a new era and a fresh start with Washington. Now, talk of fresh starts and new eras tells us that perhaps relations haven't been at their best in recent years. So would you say that Turkey has become a semi-detached member of NATO, as some claim? And what are the consequences of this, if so, both for the alliance and for Turkey? Turkey has the second largest land forces in NATO. Traditionally, Turkey is the alliance's southern flank bastion against Soviet aggression. Russia has remained a threat to NATO. The United States continues to maintain an important base at Injilik in Turkey. That base has been important during major US operations in the region. And on the other side, for Turkey, NATO has provided a shield against Russian and other threats. The NATO allies have been a ready source of defense equipment and investment. And in strategic terms, NATO has been a key feature of Turkey's security relationship. After all, Turkey is part of an unstable and conflicted region. And it's a region which is given to transactional relationships which provide no basis at all for long-term stability. It's NATO which has provided that security and stability. That's why a reset's needed, 
a great deal of that has been lost. And the key reason is the Russian S-400 missiles, which Turkey has purchased. Not just a commercial interest. It's not just a matter of profit. These S-400s are a direct threat to the NATO systems, in particular the new aircraft, the F-35s, which are being procured by most NATO countries. That's what they were built for, the S-400s, the um, F-35s. And it's hard to imagine that NATO assets in Turkey would not become the Russian specialists uh, who were in Turkey working on the S-400s. And the result has been the cancellation of Turkey's role in F-35 production. Turkey was part of the construction program. It was tremendously important in defense terms. It also provided jobs, income, and technological know-how. And it's also resulted in the imposition of sanctions by the US on Turkey. So you have one NATO ally imposing sanctions on another. Here's another example. Turkey has become heavily engaged in the Libyan conflict on the side of the government against the forces of Halifa Haftar. Turks have deployed drones, other military hardware, personnel, and Syrian mercenaries. The result has been a setback for Haftar forces, and those forces have been supported by others, including, for example, France. And there was one occasion of near confrontation between the naval forces of France on the one hand and Turkey on the other. So, as with the S-400s, you've got an example of Turkey in near conflict with the NATO ally. But Libya also plays an important part in Turkish political energy and her border national interests in the Mediterranean. There's Egypt, Israel, Cyprus, Greece, Energy Alliance, which the Turks, this current Turkish government, would like to disrupt. And in that framework, the sad thing is that Turkey has no regard for the policy constraints alliance membership requires. So a policy reset is required, but I think it's worth concluding on this point that the S-400s are absolutely essential for this. It's hard to see how the issue can be resolved without not based on one side or the other. So clearly in recent years, the direction of some of Ankara's moves and decisions have tested its relationship with more than one NATO ally. But do you think that that is part of a fundamental relocation away from Europe and the West, both in political, commercial and cultural terms? And if so, then where has Turkey gone? There was an early prime minister during the present government, Mr. Davogoglu, who was a remarkable man in many ways. And one of the things he did was to question Turkey's location in Europe. That was chosen by Azerbaijan. Turkey was to be Western and European. But the consequence of that being that Turkey was permanently at the edge of and a subsequent to values and institutions of which it wasn't entirely or wholly a part. And Davutoglu thought that Turkey should be the center of its own, uh, a region which had distinctive historical, geographical, and cultural features, partly but not exclusively European. I think there's a lot of good sense in that. Amongst other things, it reopened historical and commercial links to the Arab world. It came at a time when the prospect of EU membership for Turkey, a powerful motor for reform, culminating in the opening of accession negotiations in 2004. I, for one, thought that that process was one which would continue and lead to EU membership for Turkey some, say, 10 years later. And, of course, a great deal has gone wrong since then. A good deal of it is the fault of Europe. But on the Turkish side, 
I have to say that the steady drift away from democracy towards authoritarianism and repression does indeed look pretty fundamental. It's a complex that Turkey has now locked up virtually all journalists who criticize the regime. The only media allowed to support the government and the abortive coup has become a pretext for the detention or firing of any alleged opponent at all. What about business? Well, business has become what I call clientelists. If you want a contract, you better support the president. And the same goes for banks if they want to get government business. Education and culture, well, there are many new schools where education is based on religion. They're called Imam Hatib schools. Universities are increasingly run by rectors who tear Erdogan's values. And Western art is increasingly frowned upon. So Turkey looks as though it's heading in the direction of becoming a fully Islamic state like others in the region. But I don't think it's that straightforward. First of all, Erdogan is certainly devout. But what guides him is what keeps him in power. So my belief is that Islam is a tool, but it's not necessarily the destination. There's an important Shiite minority which supports a secular state. Perhaps most importantly, Turkey is not exempt from the impact of globalization. The millennial generation there increasingly shares the values and the outlook of that generation everywhere. Another consequence of what happened is that while print media may have been silenced, uh, social media networking and reporting is as developed in Turkey as it is anywhere. And although the old secular state may be long gone, the kind of pluralist democratic values, nowadays called Ataturkis, Erdogan's opponents, actually unify them, unify the opponents. So I think it's an open question whether a regime like this with waning popularity because of a failing economy and with external pressure from the United States and others will actually prevail in the medium term. We'll just have to see. to the relationship between the UK and Turkey in particular. Now, neither the UK nor Turkey are now members of the European Union, though Turkey is in a customs union with the EU. What does this mean for their future relationship? Both are now non-EU members of NATO, and that has been arguably a serious difficulty for Turkey. Will it now become so for the UK as well? which has, of course, always played an incredibly important role in the development of European defence. Yeah, well, I sort of have to keep a straight face at this point. Both governments claim after Brexit that they will enjoy a wonderfully productive relationship, which they can together leverage through their interests in the wider world. The idea is that they'll exploit the UK's closeness to the Europeans, in fact, if not in name, and that they've also got Turkey's union agreement with the EU to make, to make use of. On the contrary, Brexit has reduced Britain's political and security capacity and influence worldwide. Nor can the UK make use of its previous membership of the European Union. The current British government's attitude to the EU is cool when not actively hostile. Right now, you've got the row about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Frankly, the Europeans have more important things on their mind. 
And Turkey, on the other hand, will tell you, as a non-member, they have to accept any trading agreement the EU makes with a third country. And the customs union agreement is badly out of date. For example, there's nothing in it which deals with services or intellectual property rights. And of course, the UK's long-held position as the EU's strongest supporter of Turkish accession to the EU doesn't count much when the UK is not a member of the EU. All bad news, I'm afraid. You asked about defence and security. Brexit removes from the European Union a member which possesses 40% of the European Union's defence industry and, and contributes. 25% of its armed forces. The UK, for its part, loses access to the EU's defence framework and the European Defence Fund, which coordinates and increases investment in defence. And of course, as in all other areas, the UK loses the multiplier effect of EU membership. For Turkey, of course, the great problem was the accession of Cyprus. Cyprus is a neutral non-NATO state. It meant that Cyprus could play a decisive role in European military operations in which a member of NATO, Turkey, played no role at all, but her operations which used NATO assets. So Turkey, as a result, simply blocked all EU operations ever since. Turkey's defence has always depended heavily on, on United States support, but her semi-detached relationship now puts that in doubt as well, I think. So it's a difficult situation for both because the UK is in a similar position now. It's lost credibility. It has to guard against regional instability in the context of waning US support for Europe, notwithstanding, and make severe efficiencies, defense efficiencies along with everything else. So I think it's not good news all round. I think in the very long term, NATO will decay for all kinds of reasons. And I think that in the very long term, Europeans' defence will become vital, both for Turkey and for the UK. Thank you, David. And just a reminder, I'm Cheyenne Talabani, and I'm talking to Sir David Logan, former British ambassador to Turkey. One of our previous speakers, David, um, Dr. Aykan Erdemir, he spoke on our last Turkey podcast and said something rather bold. He said that Turkey's Kurdish question is the single most important factor undermining Turkey's democracy, its economy, and its relationships with NATO allies. What do you think of that? And a rather more difficult question, what do you think is needed to end the conflict with the Kurds in Turkey? I think he's he's pretty much right. Uh, it's impossible to underestimate the seriousness of the Kurdish question in Turkey. I want to step back a bit to start with, because I think this has a bit of a key to what we're talking about. Traditionally, people resort to terrorism when they can't achieve their objectives by peaceful means. Once concessions are made, then terrorism, terrorists lose support. And of course, it's hard to continue terrorism if you haven't got the backing of a sympathetic population behind you. What then, however, happens is that the government has to start negotiating with people it regards as murderers. And confidence in the erstwhile terrorists is absolutely minimal. And it's very easy for extremists on both sides to disrupt the process. For example, and this has been an issue in the last Turkish peace initiative, 
it's very hard for people to accept that terrorists should be allowed to keep their weapons. And the first thing, of course, is the majority of Turks aren't Kurds, and elections in Turkey aren't won by supporting the peace process with the Kurds. And Turkey is very far from satisfying the basic requirements for a peace process. And there's been years and years, as you know, of violence and destruction. And turning that round requires little small confidence-building measures, which are slowly built upon. Turkish peace initiatives, like President Erdogan some years ago, are often that very grand affairs with no basis of trust on which to be founded. The switch t- is turned off the moment that the political risk, and I gave the political context, look too great to continue It's not hard to identify easy wins in southeastern Turkey. Obviously, teaching and the use of the Kurdish language, for example, in courts, and some degree of local autonomy. Of course, these days, devolution in the UK isn't a particularly good example of what the Turks have always said to me they regard as a slippery slope. And there are many more Kurds than there are Scots. But as we were saying earlier, the fundamental need is to achieve a situation in which Kurds, who live, after all, in a landlocked region without enormous resources, should turn to look to Ankara for protection and sustenance and solidarity and stability rather than elsewhere. I have to say the prospects are frankly poor. Erdogan's government, as you know, is dependent on the nationalist MHP, the Kurdish political party, the HDP has been persecuted, its members of parliament have been put in prison. The war in Syria has resulted in a concentration of Kurds near the Turkish border. And of course, famously, the United States has used their fighters, the YPD, against Assad's forces from Damascus. But the YPD is closely linked to the PKK, the Kurdish terrorist organization in Turkey. So for Turkey, the support for an arming of terrorists by a NATO ally is very deeply resented. And then Turkish occupation of the Syrian border area, which is much populated by Kurds, persists for a long time, and that may make Macca's words. But as we said at the outset, I think that the cost in economic and military terms of the present level of violence is tremendous for both sides. Political will is absolutely essential. discussed Turkey's intrusion into northern Syria, which brings us to the next question, David, which is Turkey's relations with Arab countries of the Middle East. Turkey has had long-standing but very bumpy relations at times with the Arab countries of the Middle East and, of course, with Iran as well. The Syrian war made this arguably more evident than ever, and Turkey now occupies parts of northern Syria. Is there any prospect of peace as long as Turkey occupies parts of northern Syria, for which the domestic conflict with the Kurds is, of course, a very important reason, and you touched upon? And what opportunities does the Turkish intrusion into Syria offer other international actors, such as Russia? Historically, of course, the Arab countries were colonies. Turkish attitudes to the Arab countries, a bit like that of the British towards it former African colonies years ago. And in World War I, the British used Arabs to fight Ottoman armies. 
And what comes next? Ashtok had absolutely no use for the Arabs because, as far as he was concerned, Turkey's future was the Western. And I mentioned Prime Minister David Olu. He changed that for the reasons I described earlier. Trade boomed, tourism boomed, Turkish soap operas became everyday rotting for, for in the Arab world. But it didn't last. President Erdogan used the religious card to woo Arabs, but he found himself unable to surmount the obstacle of the Sunni-Shiite divide. He bitterly criticized the overthrow of Sunni President Morsi in Egypt, the candidate of the Muslim Brotherhood. And he soon found himself at odds with Shiite Iran and countries like Iraq, whose population is partly Shiite, and Syria, whose mainly Sunni population are ruled by President Assad. Now, when the uprising against Assad started, Erdogan backed the Sunni rebels. And I have to say, I think many people admired him, uh, unsupported by the West. And Assad, backed by Russia and Iran, was victorious. And Erdogan was left with a foothold in Syria to try to interdict the relationship between the PYD and the PKK and to stop ISIS terrorists escaping into Turkey. Since then, relations with Egypt, the Gulf states, and Saudi Arabia have been bad. In Saudi's case, of course, exacerbated by the gruesome murder of Khashoggi in Istanbul. And the only exception was Qatar, particularly after its isolation by other Sunni states. You mentioned outsiders, and the fact is that the strife in the Middle East has given a free ride to Russia. Russia has a major base in Syria. Russia's relationship with Turkey is highly volatile. They're on different sides over Nagorno-Karabakh. They confront each other in northern Syria. And it's only five years since the Turks shot down a Russian fighter, allegedly in Turkish airspace. But on the other hand, Turkey is heavily dependent on Russia for energy. It's an important export market. And in normal, non-COVID times, an important destination for Russian tourists. The relationship is heavily transactional, as that implies, those ups and downs in the relationship. There's a very big elephant in the room, namely the United States. There are now signs of change. The Turkish foreign minister, Foreign Minister Shabuzhoglu, has visited Riyadh and Cairo, and he says he wants to reset relationship. And the reasons for that include its regional isolation, and I think also the implication of a new approach by President Biden to the region. I don't know, it's too soon to foresee an outcome. Turkey's foreign policy is highly opportunistic. It lacks any secure and established framework. And to wrap up, David, my final question is about the future of Turkey. Erdogan's government is facing increasingly challenging financial problems as well as political difficulties at the polls. What does, in your opinion, life beyond Erdogan look like for Turkey and could it change course? Well, as you imply, there's a clear recognition by Erdogan that voters are turning away. You will have seen an extraordinarily rapid rotation of senior officeholders in the economy ministry and at the central bank. 
Another recent fact has been these extraordinary video allegations of corruption by Sedat Pekker, who is a convicted criminal gang leader. These video sessions have gripped millions of Turks. At the same time, the government is struggling with these economic woes I mentioned, and of course, COVID. Pekker's attacks have, attacks have centered on the interior minister, Soylu, but are certainly not confined to him. For the future, the AKP government is dependent on the support of the right-wing nationalist party, the MHP. And so Erdogan's government policies on things like Kurds, Armenia, and the Uyghurs in China are constrained. The AKP itself are currently polling at about 45%. But you'll remember that they won a major Turkish city, Izmir and Ankara, in the last mayoral elections. So an AKP victory is far from a foregone conclusion. So Erdogan will look for allies. They, for that matter, will the main opposition party, the CHP, which is slowly adjusting from years of unappealing electoral campaigns. There are new parties, but their appeal is uncertain. We can expect Erdogan to try to maximize his prospect. And of course, the media will be totally supportive of the AKP. But I think there's a real prospect that Erdogan won't return. Then the question is, would he accept such a result? We just don't know. And your question is, if he was replaced, would the presidential system survive? I think probably not. I think that the Turkish people have tolerated lots of freedoms, arbitrary imprisonment and corruption, just so long as Erdogan has delivered improved living standards. And that's now come to an end. And most Turks remember the days of semi-democracy. And those who don't are young enough to be alienated already by Erdogan. I'm not suggesting that there'll be an immediate return to the previous constitution, but I do think that the present system I think could be replaced by a better and genuinely parliamentary system, which would be accompanied by the kinds of rights and freedoms which are enjoyed elsewhere in Europe. Well, that brings us to the end of our podcast, Sir David, but I cannot thank you enough for your absolutely invaluable insights into the current Turkish government, but also into wider questions and issues of European security and of the future of European security and the transatlantic alliance. Thank you so much, Sir David, and we hope to speak to you soon again. It's been a pleasure, Sharon. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Charlotte Leslie, and this podcast on Turkey was sponsored by Karkin and Yuxel, a full-service law firm providing a diverse range of legal services operating from the Gherkin in the City of London. We are proud to be associated with them. Mm-hmm.